Um, when Derek asked me, uh, when he invited me to fill in for him, he said, Mark, go ahead and pick a topic, whatever topic you want. It has to be related to Christology, though. Being ambitious and probably very foolish, I said, what about Christ and culture? And he, Derek had a bit of a, a gleam in his eye, and I should have interpreted that a little bit more clearly because what that gleam really meant was, you're going to try and do this in one night. So I'm going to go ahead and make a frank admission. There's no chance I'm going to cover this topic tonight. It needs at least um, eight, nine, ten weeks. And um, <laughs> So be prepared to go home with more questions and answers, and there will be a lot of frustration. But I do know that I did warn you ahead of time. Um, Okay, so why culture? Why Christianity, church and culture? Why Christ and culture? Well, if we are Christians who are committed to the application of Scripture to all areas of life, culture is actually important to us. Um, The tendency for Christians is to fall into one of two traps. We're either going to um, try to isolate ourselves from culture altogether, withdraw from it, or we're going to jump right in and just have the culture wash right over us so that we look too much like culture. Um, what I'm going to go for tonight is something that's a little different. Um, it's trying to find a, the happy balance. So the plan tonight is to work through creation first, then culture, and then the church. First point tonight is the work reflects the worker. This is the doctrine of creation. And although Derek's already talked about creation, we're not going to understand what culture is unless we understand what creation is. Creation is essentially God's gift to us. And out of creation, culture arises. And my whole point is, culture is not a bad thing inherently. It's never we get our hands on it. That's when things get messed up. Okay, so just briefly, we're going to work through the doctrine of creation Three points. What doctrine of creation is and about what the reason why creation didn't come into existence. First thing is, God didn't create out of loneliness. Derek has already covered this. Um, this is a great quote from Cornelius Planinga. He said, Nobody ever said, it is not good for God to be alone, so let there be birch trees and bullfrogs and advertising executives. And you can add whatever else you want into that. Um, God did not create out of loneliness. Um, God did also not create out of a sense of incompleteness. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a Jerry Maguire moment. It wasn't, you complete me. God didn't create, look at what he had created and said, you complete me. God was already fully complete in himself. His life was so replete that he did not need anyone else um, to f- bring fulfillment to his life, to the trying God's life. Uh, I have the quote here, the doctrine of creation flows from the infinite perfection of God. And an amazing biblical truth is that when God created, whenever I, if I give something to someone, if I give something to Neil, if I give him $20, which I don't have um, even on me, but hypothetically, if I give him $20, I'm $20, you know, in the hole. When God creates, he doesn't already have existing matter or he doesn't give off himself. What he gives is something entirely new. So there's not a sense in which uh, God is in competition with creation. It's not as though God creates um, out of his own um, resources. That So there's not this transition from God to us. There's not a carryover. He's perfectly um, perfect. He's infinitely perfect in who he is. The third thing we need to keep in mind is that God did not create out of boredom. He just wasn't uh, 
Father, the Son, and the Spirit weren't sitting around thinking, we've had all this time together, what else can we get to do? Remember, we've got to remember that God is eternal. So if God was not compelled to create the world, then creation must have been a deliberate act on the part of God. There was a design and an intention. So why did God bring something out of nothing? So those are the three negative points that help us understand what creation is not. Here's some positive points. God created out of who he is. He created out of love. It is he, beneficent in nature, goodness without measure, a worthy object of love for all being endowed with reason, the beauty most to be desired, the origin of all that exists, the source of life, intellectual light, impenetrable wisdom. He it is who in the beginning created heaven and earth. We are God's idea. The earth is God's idea. And as we'll see, culture is God's idea. God also created out of his boundless love. And this, one of my favorite authors is G.K. Chesterton, and he says this. The whole difference between construction and creation is that a thing constructed can only be loved after it is constructed. But a thing that is created is loved before it exists. And that's an important point. In God's infinite love, he creates and still loves us after the fact. So whenever we make something, we look upon it afterwards, we, we kind of get used to it. Oh, I may even love this thing. God creates even before, or God loves even before he creates. God also loves creation and does not dispose of that which he creates. Even when sin enters into existence and Adam and Eve catapult humanity into the, and the cosmos into complete disarray, God's plan of salvation is not to save us apart from creation, but to save us from within creation. And this is one of the points we covered in Sunday School. So for those of you who are in Sojourners, this is kind of um, an extra echo. This is hard for us to understand because we live in a disposable culture. We get our hands on something, we use it, and we get rid of it just like that. We have disposable everything. And... We've got to think theologically. God does not dispose of anything. So when we come to creation, we don't look at it as something, well, we have tarnished it. Sin's messed everything up. Um, new heavens and a new earth are going to be something entirely new. Not really. We are going to be the people we are when God redeems everything. So whether you like it or not, the bodies that you have are what you have whenever we're going to be in glory. Now, they're going to be fine-tuned and glorified. And there may be certain things about you that are maybe different. But there will also be a glow about you. The glory of the Lord will be upon you. But you will not look entirely different. I will know what you look like. I will know Chad whenever we get the glory. We will not be indistinguishable from one another. We will be glorified but we will be made renewed and that's the whole point about creation is that what God plans what he brings in what he brings into existence is not disposed of I mean thank God it's not disposed of right thank God that when he created us and Adam and Eve catapulted us and the cosmos into the into sin God didn't, didn't just wipe out everything even with the flood and Noah he doesn't wipe out everything, right? There is a remnant that remains. He is committed. He covenants with us. So creation will be remade. So God's plan of salvation is inextricably linked with creation rejoicing. The idea that 
the forests, the trees, everything that he brings into existence, all of nature will not be done away with. And we see this in scripture. We see this in Isaiah 55 verses 12 through 13. Here we see what the future will look like. It's not just about Jesus coming back, taking us out of creation. It's about coming back, Christ coming back and renewing everything. And so Isaiah prophesies, for you, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The mountains and the hills and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So here we see all of nature rejoicing in salvation. Nature rejoices in what God does. And it's this idea that salvation is not only about just your soul being saved and your soul being taken up to to heaven. It's about your bodies and your souls, who you are, is redeemed. And so all of the cosmos gets redeemed too. And so that's an idea that we've got to get our, our, our heads and our hearts around. Even though Paul tells us in Romans that we along with creation groan in pains of childbirth, Romans 8, Isaiah tells us that creation's groaning will turn into rejoicing. And the key is here is that matter matters to God. What God creates matters to him. Creation matters to him. I mean, beautiful days matter to him. We matter to him. It's not just our souls that God is after. It's our entire being. And this has so many different ethical implications. It's, it's, why, it's why we kick up a stink about the pro-life movement. It's about you know, this, this embryo is important to God. And you know, we're, we're talking about the image of God and everything else. I really did yeah, bite off more than I could chew when I took up this topic because there are so many things that I want to talk about. But I'm disciplining myself to try and stay on track. So in sum... We need to stress the immensity and the beauty of creation and the awfulness of the fall and the sin. Everything that has been created good is good, including the full range of human cultures that emerge when humans act according to God's design. So culture, if creation is what God gives to us, culture is what arises whenever we get our hands on nature. It's what happens, culture is what happens whenever Uh, We use God's gifts. So things that, and we're moving towards a definition, things that are cultural include architecture, music, uh, anything that we put our hands to that is free of sin. Now I have to qualify that. Everything that we do touch is also tainted by sin. So there's this here kind of relationship that God gives us gifts to use and we use them. That forms culture. But our gifts are also, they also carry the baggage of sin with them. So every perfect thing that God gives to us, we take and we mess it up. But it still bears a reflection of what God gave to us, if that makes sense. So culture, we're using our gifts, we're using nature. Most of it can be good if we use it the right way, but it's still got the baggage of sin on us. And we look around and we can see this, right? 
And this brings us to the second point, which is the cultural part. And I, I title this, The Creature Obeys the, cr- the Creator. And here I'm just, I'm, I'm stealing Derek's stuff on the cultural mandate. In Genesis 1.28, we are told to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, and to have dominion. This is what we do whenever, uh, whenever God gives us this cultural mandate. This is our responsibility. And it's this cultural mandate. Whenever we do, we're being fruitful, we're multiplying, we're filling the earth, we're subduing it, and we're having dominion. This is our cultural role. This is our cultural responsibility. So you're already seeing, even from Genesis 1, we can't avoid culture. Culture is our calling. So we can't hide away from culture. We have responsibilities. Some of you who are already thinking ahead are probably thinking, well, the fall happens in Genesis 3. This is in Genesis 1. So what does the fall do to our cultural mandate? Getting there. So the creature obeys the creator and even reflects the creator. Well, how does the creature reflect the work of the creator? Well, if the creature obeys the creator, he, and when he blesses them to care for what God has given, then what we do with what God gives us, if we do it in a, in a sanctified way, we are reflecting the work of the creator. So in the way that God creates out of love, when, when we do whatever we're gifted with out of love for other people, for God, we actually reflect God's work in creation. We don't tend to think about that. And we'll get to our jobs because this all reflects and comes down and finds purchase in what we consider to be our jobs. So God charged our first parents to transform untamed nature into a social environment by cultural formation that fits God's design. I'll say that again. God charged our first parents to transform untamed nature into a social environment by cultural formation that fits God's design. Our cultural role has to reflect God's role in creation. Our role in culture has to reflect the creator's role in creation. So for example, to expand the idea of what it means to charge the charge to fill the earth, where we speak languages, we build things, we build cathedrals, we enter into contracts, we play sports, we sing and we listen to music and so on and so forth. And when we do such things, and we do things in a sanctified way, we are acting in, in the same kind of character as the one who created us. It's like our, the image that God put in us is coming to life. It's whenever we become believers, that image is almost turned back on and brought back to life. It's, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I don't know if this illustration works. Whenever our witness, whenever we're, we're functioning as cultural agents the way God wants us to do, we're like light bulbs, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is the electricity that turns things on. And once that happens, we actually can shine a light And that's an idea that I want to pick up a little bit later. So we're finally getting to a definition of what culture is. Um, Again, culture is probably one of the most complex things to discuss. And I'm I'm the fool for trying to take this thing on, but here we go. So not only is the task before us a difficult one, but even um, a secular sociologist of culture, Raymond Williams, has claimed that culture is one of the two or three most complicated words in the English language. 
Um, so we're not only dealing with one of the most complicated words that is so laden with um, so much complexity, we're actually trying to make sure that we put it into conversation with theology, which, as you've become aware, is not exactly the most simplistic thing either. So you put these two things into a conversation, and things start to you know, flow over and become very complicated. I hope it, uh, that's not the result by the end. So, how do we define this concept? Well, if we're speaking of culture in the abstract, we're going to, be, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. Um, Andy Crouch, who's written an interesting book, I, yeah, it's in the footnotes there, uh, he offers a helpful explanation. He says, culture always and only comes from particular human acts of cultivation. And this is where it kind of links back to the cultural mandate. So it only comes from particular human acts of cultivation and creativity. We don't make culture. We make omelets. We tell stories. We build hospitals. We pass laws. These specific products of cultivating and creating, are, there should be a what in there, are what eventually over time become part of the framework of the world for future generations. So I think Christ is right here. The whole idea of culture is culture is we don't make culture. We participate in culture. We contribute to culture, but we don't make culture. If that makes sense. It's an important distinction. We don't make culture. It's something that arises from our specific gifts, our callings, and our desires. And Kevin Van Hooser, um, he has a definition of culture which is helpful. It's, he breaks it down into two things. Culture is both a work and it's a world. It's a work because it is the result of what humans do freely. Culture is what we do when, we get, when humans get the raw material of creation in their hands and they start building, they start shaping things, they start singing, they start acting. This is what culture is. It's a work. But it's also a world. And that's why we can't build culture. It's a world that attempts to create a meaningful environment to live in, both physically and imaginatively. So if culture is both a work and it's also both a, a world, we can't escape from it. We can't escape from culture. But one of my points which will come up um, again and again is that Christians try to escape culture. But if we are given a cultural mandate, those five things to fill the earth, subdue it, multiply, and all these other aspects, when we actually retreat from culture... We're actually not doing what God created us to do. When we try to isolate ourselves from culture so that we're this little spiritual ghetto that um, we don't mind taking the benefits from culture, but we're not going to go out and do anything to kind of contribute, we're actually thinking and acting unbiblically. So the necessity of culture, as I've said, we can't escape culture, and theology and the Christian life, for that matter, can only be done in a cultural form. When I'm speaking, I'm speaking English. When I granted this with a weird accent, but it's still English. Uh, we, we speak in languages together. That's a cultural form. So when we are witnessing to people in words, that's a cultural act. So no matter how you try to, to slice it, there's no way that you can escape culture. There's no way. Everything that we do takes on a, a cultural shape. So for instance, um, um, 
being from Northern Ireland, I'm going to have certain cultural, you know, predilections or um, things about me that have shaped me. And each one of you is the same way, whether you're from Colombia or San Francisco or Portland or wherever, you're all going to have idiosyncrasies about you, quirks. Your culture has shaped and molded you to, uh, even your families have, your friends do, the people that you're surrounded with. They shape you in a, in a cultural way. Coming to First Presbyterian Church shapes you in a cultural way. Speaking in a room like this shapes you in a cultural way. There's nothing that you can do to escape culture. But rather than thinking of, of that being an imprisonment, if we embrace the idea, we can actually be, it can actually be very liberating because then we actually get to take the gospel into culture and do something that we were created to do with it. Um, so... Culture is necessary. Every time, we, anytime, every time we try to interpret the gospel or speak to someone about the gospel, we're doing it with the language of our culture. In sum, creation is God's good gift to us. Creation is what we do with what God has given to us in creation. With the raw materials that includes nature, ourselves, our gifts, our desires, our talents, and our inclinations. So if creation is what God gives us, culture is our way of response. Our acts, our specific acts, jobs, gifts, that's our response to creation. So you could say, if you want to put it in a really simplistic form in a nutshell, cultural activity is our response to creation. And the thing about this is, even the unbeliever, whether he or she knows it or not, is still responding to creation. They can't escape culture. And what they do tells you what they think about God, the creator. So even with the gifts and the talents that they have, what they do with it reflects what they think of creation and of the creator. So we can't escape culture. So the key is whether we're actually being cultural in a way that reflects the creator or we're being cultural in a way that is determined by sin. Uh, it's easy to see how this plays itself out. If, if you have a television set, you can't escape Miley Cyrus right now. Here is a, a terrible situation where this young woman, whether she knows it or not, is being used as an instrument. I, willingly, of course, I'm not trying to get her off the hook, but the way that she expresses her gifts to the creator is terrible and sinful. So we can't escape this. And this is just a way of just kind of saying, you know, everyone responds to creation in a particular way. So we've discussed the original goodness of creation. We've discussed the cultural mandate that is still in effect. We have to admit that sin hampers our exercise of the cultural mandate. But the question, the question that still dominates the conversation and the discussion about the Christian's role in culture is always how the Christian and the culture, how the, how the Christian and the church relates to culture. How is it that we do our work, we engage unbelievers, how is it that we as Christians engage the world? And so we've talked about creation, we've talked about culture, now we get down to the kind of the, the nitty gritty. We now need, need to talk about responses to culture. I've kind of highlighted already at the front end that there, the two main ways are either trying to run away from culture or to just jump right in and just soak it all up. Well, the one person who has defined this conversation is an American, no surprise, uh, in a good way though, 
maybe. Um, Richard Niebuhr was a theologian ethicist at the turn. I mean, his major work came out in the middle of the last century. He gave a set of lectures at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. These lectures were subsequently turned into a book form, and the book is Christ and Culture, which was published in 1951. This book, even though it's over 60 years old, is still the touchstone book that people go to whenever we talk about how Christians engage the world. It sets the, it sets the tone about everything. Well, Niebuhr was born in Missouri in 1884. His father, Gustav, was a German who was a minister at a German evangelical synod. Basically, this denomination was a mixture of Lutherans and Reformed. Um, Richard was his... Um, Richard had a brother. His brother was Reinhold. Reinhold and Richard defined liberal theology for the American context of last century. And so... Niebuhr writes this book and it, I mean, it turns conservatives and liberals onto the subject. Both conservatives and liberals jump on the bandwagon and they're all like, yes, we need to transform culture. And of course they do it in different ways, but the guy who's turned the key for the engine is Richard Niebuhr. And uh, we're going to just look briefly at what it is that Niebuhr has done for our discussion of how we as Christians can engage in culture. Well, what's his definition of culture? Niebuhr says, what we have in view when we deal with Christ and culture is that total process of human activity to which which now the name culture is applied in speech. It comprises language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, and values. It is a social heritage. And this is a key, what the New Testament writers had in mind when they spoke of the world. So what Niebuhr does is basically say that every cultural activity falls under the category of the world. Whenever Paul uses the world, what's he talking about? Is the world a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. It's always, you know, grace in the world. Um, The world always kind of captures up a bunch of different ideas like sin, you know, Phariseeism, you know, hypocrisy, all these different sins fall under the world. So what Niebuhr does by setting up the discussion as Christ and culture, it's Christ against everything that's sinful. But if we've already understood that culture can actually be good, that there are certain things that we do that are good and can be glorifying to God, Niebuhr's already stacked the deck in favor of his discussion. And so this plays itself out. And whether we know it or not, we have bought into Niebuhr's typology. You'll see that what he says here, most of us will be able to not only identify, but each one of us in some way or the other have bought into this model. So as we're reading through this and working through this, try and think about ways in which not only we as Western Christians, but Christians in Columbia, South Carolina, have adopted one particular model out of his five So his typology, there are five parts to it. There's the Christ against culture, and this is what he is really against. I mean, he's really trying to dismantle this idea that we should be against culture. That's his prime target. Then there's the Christ of culture. There's Christ above culture. There's Christ and culture in paradox. And there's Christ the transformer of culture, and that's where he puts himself. He's saying this is where the church needs to be. We need to be a transformer of culture. 
So, Niebuhr believes that each of the five types is a genuine expression of the social implications of the gospel. So the gospel takes one of these forms in whatever particular culture we live in. So we're either going to be against culture, we're going to be off culture, we're going to be above culture, or we're going to be in a paradox with it, or we're going to try and transform and convert culture. So this is a really bold project. He's really believing that every church leans in one direction, in one particular type. So what's Niebuhr's starting point? Well, for Niebuhr, the relation of Christ to culture is if that's the problem. As I've already said, he sets up culture as the world. It's, it's problematic for him, and so he's trying to reconcile this problem. Christ lived a perfect life of perfect and complete obedience to God. He was single-minded in his devotion to God. Culture, on the other hand, is man-centered, and because of sin and diversity, compromises need to be made to overcome troubling relation, this troubling relation. So if you think about this, even politically, Niebuhr is the guy that has set liberal democracy, has set the stage for American liberal democracy. So the way that we function is... Um, it's the lesser of two evils. We can't live a perf- We can't have a perfect society. So we're always going to have problems in the world. We can't overcome that. Christ is this perfect ideal. Well, that's for the Christians. So we've got to make concessions when it comes to politics. So it's okay to cut corners. It's okay if we want to invade here, there, or everywhere. It's okay if you know there's certain things that are allowed to pass in the laws that aren't necessarily biblical he set two divisions in place and it's the it's it's very utilitarian it's very much what works and his whole idea as long along with his brother reinhold is this idea of called christian realism we've got to be realistic about the world world is sinful jesus was perfect we can never be like jesus so we've got to kind of do with what we have here so Let's just see what we can do. It never really tries to strive to be like Jesus. And so this kind of bleeds over into the way that he views our relation to culture. So how do we avoid extremes? Because this is what Niebuhr has set up. Well, some Christians follow Jesus so strictly that they find it necessary to try to separate from culture altogether. And they retreat into safety. They, they set up walls to culture. They want to protect their family and their kids. They go to a Christian compound, metaphorically speaking, and they never engage culture. But if you've seen, and if, again, if you're in the Sojourners, I mean, this is, I'm recycling material here, but if you've seen M. Night Shyamalan's film, The Village, here's a story about a group of people in Philadelphia. Shyamalan always uses Philadelphia. Um, a group of people that have encountered so many hardships. One woman was raped. Um, one couple had their child um, gunned down in a drive-by. Another guy um, had his store looted and he was beaten up. So, and you have a bunch of them that get together in this kind of counseling um, AA type environment. And they say, what if we could just create an environment in which we don't have to deal with this stuff? So they create this, with the, one of the guys was multi-multi-billionaire, and they buy this land in the middle of nowhere, set up these walls, and they go and they start living there. But the amazing thing is, which is really fascinating, if you've, if you've not seen the film, I apologize, but this came out like maybe over 10 years ago, so I, I don't feel too bad you know, giving you the spoiler, but what ends up happening is they, they try to paint the perfect picture. So what is the perfect culture? Well, for them, it's the pilgrims. 
It's, it's, it's before technology really takes off and you don't have a, an angry and inhospitable city. Well, the problem is, even if you try to, and what the movie teaches us is that if you try to withdraw from culture, the problem is you're taking yourself with you. Where you go, you're taking sin with you. So we might try to create the best spiritual compound, the best spiritual ghetto, but we're there. And no matter how many walls and how high you put them up, sin still reigns. And so instead of looking at it as, well, we can actually retreat from culture where we'll be safe, we're forgetting about our own hearts. We're forgetting about that whenever you buy into neighbor's project, basically you're looking at Christ and Christians against the world. You're not seeing that inside the heart of every man and woman runs good and evil if you're a Christian. We are not in glory yet. And so we can't just separate ourselves from culture. We're in culture. Culture can be good. We can even contribute and help people flourish as the church. So we've got to try and avoid extremes. Did you see, I didn't actually give away the ending of The Village there. Did you see that? So if you haven't seen it, just a, just a caveat though, it's a scary one. Um, I watched it and uh, it was during the stage of my um, life when I was wearing baseball caps. I was really getting into American culture. And I asked my wife, I pulled it over in the little holes. I actually watched parts of it through the hole. I, I'm quite scared of films like this. Um, so beware, it's, it, it's a scary one. Okay, so we've got to avoid extremes. The other, so we can either retreat, withdraw from culture, and the other extreme is to identify Jesus so closely with culture that the two become wed together. And this is the idol of nationalism, right? You can't have Christianity without Americanism. You can't have Christianity without the American flag. You can't see one without the other. And it comes across in many different ways. And we've got to be able to make sure that culture doesn't wed itself to our Christian convictions so tightly that it's impossible to separate them. And that's the other extreme. So neighbors, five examples. The first one, Christ against culture. These are the radicals. So Jesus came not to establish a kingdom. He wasn't interested in national identity or cultural life. But he came to set up this perfect ethical ideal, which is for the, for the Christians. It's a pious existence, which is all spiritual. There's nothing about what we do in creation, in culture. The problem with this is that we withdraw, and we reject culture. And the people he has in mind are the fundamentalists, the Quakers, the Mennonites. So the churches he has in mind are the Anabaptists and um, crazy fundamentalists in the mountains. Um, who he was really thinking about. Um, the second one is the Christ of culture. This is the other extreme. Christ and culture are in such perfect harmony. Christ actually fulfills culturals, the culture's aspirations. So it would be like, this, this is the liberalism. This is liberalism um, of the last century in particular. This is um, the church coming in and saying, well, culture, we have a solution to your problems. There's this guy called Jesus, and he can bring the peace that you're looking for. So we take Jesus, strip him down to this really nice guy who, you know, did, did good things. And we can kind of plug him into culture and say, see, now can we be part of your conversation too? So Niebuhr is at least trying to get rid of two extremes. The problem with the, the liberals, of the Christ of culture, is that there's too much compromise. There's too much accommodation. We give up too much. 
whenever we want, whenever we kind of present ourselves to culture, we were, you know, we were on that first date. You're not giving your true self. You're trying to be the best person possible, and you're willing to kind of make sure that you're, the weird things about you don't come to the surface. So you're, you're just playing very carefully. Well, this is what happens with the liberal aspect of the Christ of culture. Interestingly enough, Niebuhr had Thomas Jefferson in mind whenever he was thinking about the Christ of culture. Jefferson taking the Bible, cutting out passages which he didn't like, which didn't appeal to his political vision, and having this cut-up Bible, which uh, is basically a good picture of what the liberals try to do. So this is liberal Protestantism. Then there's the Christ above culture. Niebuhr's thinking about the Catholics here. They're looking for a both-and solution. Surrender to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God what is God's. And it's a strict exegesis of this passage. If God is Lord of all, then we've got to make sure that we make sure we give to God what's God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So it's very balanced. The problem with this is, which is Dorothy Day tells us, is once you render unto God what is God's, there's not much left over to render unto Caesar. Once we render unto God what's truly God's, there's not much left to hand over to Caesar. So and that's, that's something that, according to Niebuhr, the Catholics don't take into consideration. Then there's the Christ and culture in paradox. The Christ and culture live together in a paradox. We're all sinners. Everything that we do is doomed. These are kind of like the Eeyore of the typology. We're corrupt. Culture is corrupt. Philosophy, the arts, they're all doomed. There's no clear connection between law and grace. Therefore, there's no guidance for the Christian in how to engage culture. So it's very much a dualistic way of looking at life. And here he's thinking about Luther and Kierkegaard and basically Lutherans. And then there's Christ, the transformer of culture. And if you're reading through this book, and I encourage you to read it, it's very fascinating. He analyzes each typology and then he gives the problem, identifies people associated with it. Then when he gets to Christ, the transformer of culture, there's no critique. He gets to this final part and he, he never critiques it and he never actually identifies which particular typology, which type he believes is the best. But whenever you don't critique something and you've been critiquing everything else, that's what you believe in. And Niebuhr, I think, came out later as well as some of his students and said, yeah, he's, he's all for Christ the transformer of culture. So the key, feature of, key features of Christ the transformer of culture is to convert culture. This is neighbor's big drive. We need to convert culture. Culture presents a problem. The church is the answer. Now let's get out there and convert every aspect of culture. So who does he have in mind here? Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. And fascinating enough, he didn't mention Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper was, should have been the first person that kept, came, came to mind. I mean, Kuyper was a Christian prime minister in Holland who made Christian universities, Christian everything. But Kuyper doesn't even show up, and that would be an interesting theme to kind of trace out. But the problem with this position was what? The way Niebuhr presents Christ the transformer of culture assumes so many things that are problematic. It assumes, we've got to remember, Neighbors coming from a particular culture, America in the 1950s. And so he's thinking about culture in a particular way, in the American way, in the 1950s. So culture is very monolithic. It has one way of expressing itself. And so he sets up this idea of culture that can't be flexible, it can't be moved around. And it's also a very 
kind of stale picture of who Jesus is. Because if you read Jesus' life throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus is for culture at some times, and he's against culture. Um, he could fit into any one of these typologies. So the problem with Niebuhr is that he set up you know, just very clear-cut categories that don't give any room whatsoever. The helpful thing about it is it's a heuristic device. It helps us to kind of see, well, are we more leaning in the Christ, the transformer of culture, or are we the Christ of culture model in which we've allowed culture to do too much? It's had too much direction coming towards us. It helps us ask questions, but it's not ultimately in the, in the end very satisfying. Um, one person puts it this way, avoiding these extremes, the fundamentalist or the liberal, avoiding these extremes, we must see Christ against and for culture, both agonistic, fighting for, against it and affirming, arguing and embracing. This is complex. But then Christianity is no stranger to complexity. So Christ is both for and against culture. And if I had more time, I'm really making a play here to make sure we can do a couple more weeks of this. Um, We would have to talk about how is the Christian's role and the role of wisdom in the Christian life helpful in making us see, well, how do we know when to be for culture and when to be against it? We've already seen that we can't escape culture. We've already seen that culture is something that we need to engage. Well, as Christians, and I think this is one of the most lacking things in the church today around the world, is the idea of wisdom. How do we know how to live? Because we might be able to identify what's bad in culture or what's good in culture. We often don't know how to exercise that. Well, how do we go about doing good? How do we go about affirming the good in culture? So wisdom would play a huge role in doing that. And that's unfortunately a topic for another conversation. So we've looked at creation. We've looked at culture. Well, one thing that I want to leave us with tonight is how do we live? So this kind of scratches at the surface about how a Christian does engage culture. My point is, as a Christian, the redeemed live like the Redeemer. We've got to understand the identity of the the Redeemer. And my point here is simply, we need to be biblically and theologically literate. Too often Christians see the need to engage culture, but they don't put the hard work in and actually learning out who is it that transforms culture. It misunderstands that we don't transform culture, to use Niebuhr's language. Only Christ transforms culture. And once we think that if we just get the right president in place, or the right prime minister, that will transform culture and everything will be hunky-dory for Christians, we have lost sight of the idea that it's the Redeemer who is the transformer and not the church. So we need to understand who Jesus is before we're culturally literate. Biblical and theological literacy must precede cultural literacy. The witness of the redeemed. One of the first obstacles to bearing witness to Christ is actually cultural. So even before we get started engaging culture, culture is already trying to trip us up. Many Christians, especially in the West, have adopted the idea that work comes first. And Wendell Berry, who's a fantastic writer who's still alive in Kentucky, writes this. The old and honorable idea of vocation, this is the cultural mandate idea here, is simply that we each are called by God or by our gifts or by our preference to a kind of good work for which we are particularly fitted. 
Implicit in this idea is the evidently startling possibility that we might work willingly and that there is no necessary contradiction between work and happiness or satisfaction. What Barry's getting at is the idea that you know, we recognize that work bleeds over into our private lives. We take our work home with us so that you know, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps mentality. We work long hours and that's you know, fulfilling our vocation. When we buy into the idea that work, um, work has to be something that we give ourselves entirely to, the victims are our families. So how do we bear witness to a society in which we've already adopted their idea of work, which is not to do the best with what you've got. It's actually, it becomes an idol. Vocation becomes an idol. It becomes a way, of, I'll say here, it's rather than gifts to God, vocations have turned into work, which becomes a self-serving way to gain security. See, the society tells us, no, you just need to work hard. You need to be diligent. Diligent for what? Secular society is telling us that we need to gain security, that we need to be the gods and lords of our own existence. And we do that by accruing more wealth, more property, more everything. To achieve this, we end up feeling like we cannot remain who we are unless we are at the top of our chosen field. And it is this which demands that work creeps into time with family, fellowship with believers, and community with neighbors. We buy into the lie that work has to, we have to give ourselves over to work entirely. What Barry's trying to say is that it doesn't mean that we do what the French do and try to get the 30-hour work week. If work is a gift from God, if it's a vocation, it's a good thing. So don't cut back. Work hard. But don't let it bleed into your private life where you look just like culture. Don't let it be something in which you cannot, nobody can see any difference between you and the workaholic. Because if we're going to be a witness to the world, it has to infect even what we do from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And if the unbelieving neighbor sees us getting home at 9 o'clock at night and barely spending time with our kids on the weekends, what message does that say to them? So to live like Christ, we have to spend time with Christ. When we have met our Lord in the silent intimacy of our prayer, then we will also meet him in the market and in the, and in the town square. But when we have not met him in the center of our own hearts, we cannot expect to meet him in the busyness of our daily lives. When we take time for our families and time for our personalized time to pray, as we will do after this, we actually can be the kind of people that God has created us to be in the marketplace. Prayer has to precede productivity. Prayer and the Christian life is what we carry into the culture, into the workplace. We can't allow the workplace to carry itself into our family life and into church. We, the church and the family cannot exist on the world's standards for work and productivity. If it does, the work, or the church rather, becomes a consumer-driven market. And Christians become consumers looking for a spiritual product on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night. Well, I didn't like what the preacher said. And what was it Ralph Davis said the other night? So I'm going to take my church shopping cart to another church and inflict my own woes on someone else. Christians have become consumers because we don't have the wisdom to discern between what's work, which is a good thing, and what's Christian, what's worship. So to live like Christ, we have to follow Christ. And as we've been learning from Dr. Thomas on Sunday mornings in Philippians, we've learned this big idea of kenosis, self-emptying. So Philippians 2, 1 through 4, shapes or should shape the way that we engage culture. And I'll just read it here. 
and before we get ready to wrap up. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the passage is too good, so I'm just going to round it out. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not grasp the quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. As Derek told us, or Dr. Thomas told us, he nodded himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Christ hymn presents Jesus as the supreme example of the humble, self-sacrificing service that Paul has been urging the Philippians to practice in their relations one toward another. The lavish love of God is seen in the high humility of the suffering servant. We bear witness to the love, to this love, in humility, sacrifice, suffering, giving, and being spent. Our Christology, what we view, and this is where the whole positioning of this lecture, I suppose, in Derek, Dr. Thomas's series fits. Our Christology informs our cultural activity. Who Jesus is and who we see him to be informs and should teach us the way that we live in culture. If we're not self-sacrificial, if we're not humble, if we're not willing to be spent and to give ourselves for our neighbors... We're not living the way that Christ has called us to be. We're not of one mind, of the same mind. We're constantly fighting fighting ourselves and kicking up against a culture that says, take, 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 and hoard it. Christians are no longer givers, we're hoarders. So we take things and we hide in our compound. And we want to make sure we hold these things off for a rainy day. But if we're following Philippians 2... We're giving things away, and we, we, we're, we're not holding on to things tightly. So with our money, we're fine with just giving it away. Why? It's God's money. It's not ours. It's not the church's money. It's not First Pres's money. Now, we've got to be responsible, of course. But if we don't run with the idea that we follow the path of the suffering servant, what path are we following? And I'm starting to preach now. This is supposed to be a teaching lesson. Um, well, the early Christians provide us with an amazing example of how to bear witness like Christ and to contribute to culture, which is an image of church in the world. How do we live as a church in the world? Well, it's this letter to Diognetus. It's this early church letter. It's actually an anonymous letter. We don't know who Diognetus is, but he talks about how the Christians lived in the early church. And he says this, and it's, it's quite long, but it's one of the most important documents in Christian history, and we do so well to learn from it. It says, these early Christians, for the Christians are distinguished from, uh, from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they, in, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, 
They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. So he's already pointing out that Christians lived amongst people. They, they did their thing. They looked like anybody else. And they lived with people. But they were marked out by something. Well, what is that? What is this confessedly striking method of life? He goes on. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. We don't get too connected to the world, to culture. We engage in culture, we contribute to it, but we're sojourners. It's not what defines us and it's not what we strive for. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. This was a time in which people, the Romans, the Greeks, the barbarians knew that if they didn't want to have children, they'd give them to Christians and the Christians would look after them. The early church was actually a place where if you don't want your baby, you give it to the doorstep of the church and they will look after your children. They will look after your child. Imagine if someone left a baby on first prayers, you know, on our doorstep. I mean, who comes along to take care of this child? Probably DSS. Every land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They have a common table, the Lord's Supper, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. This is the wisdom of living a Christian life. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. That's the key. They obey the laws, but their lives live as though they're above the laws. That is another lecture, how do Christians obey and get engaged in politics. Um, And there's a whole lecture in that one sentence. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. Make many rich. This is what we as Christians ought to strive for in our cultural engagement. We live in the world. We contribute to it. We allow others to flourish, to grow. Um, We bless them with our own gifts. We know when to say no to culture, when to be against it, when to call out our political leaders. But it has to start with us being on the suffering servant's path. We We have to display this life to our neighbors we have to be able to be poor to make many rich and so we can make people flourish we can allow our neighbors to flourish by our self-sacrifice but it has to begin in this local level first it's it's grassroots christianity we can't keep thinking that if we only get you know you know the white house sorted out that will transform everything It has to begin in Blythewood, Forest Acres. It has to begin here. We have to be good to our neighbors. We have to have our neighbors looking to us to see that's what a Christian looks like. They just don't come and get the biblical and theological download on Sundays and Wednesdays. They actually live it out. And so that as Christians is what our call is to be as we try to engage culture, is to pattern our lives after the life of the suffering servant. And I am done in time by 30 seconds. <laughs> Do you want to pray? Okay. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for creating um, such a beautiful world. Even though it is tainted and marred by sin, we see, we see its perfect um, nature in 
even in its vestiges. And Lord, we see the image of God in ourselves and in others. And I pray that you would help us, enable us to be believers that are able and willing to follow your son, Jesus Christ, who did not consider it anything to be nodded, to become nothing. And Lord, I pray that we would have that mind of Christ, that we would esteem others better than ourselves, even our neighbors, not just Christians, but those around us. Help us to be people that are a light to a culture that in so many ways is dying and needs hope. Help us to be those that help culture flourish, not just for the sake of culture, but for the sake of people, for the sake of people who need to know who you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of us as we go back to our families and to our homes and to our neighbors and our neighborhoods. Bless us, we pray. In your name we ask. Amen.